Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. It is crucial to learn at least some of the deep history of our service. Not only does it give us a window into the struggles and efforts of the giants whose shoulders we stand upon, it shows us the progression that has always been driven by the necessity of innovation. As technology opens up the ability to manifest possibilities into realities at greater and greater speeds, industries, including ours, can become inundated with tools to choose from. It can be a good problem to have, but it can be equally as challenging for innovators and end users to be brought together for the benefit of the people we serve. In this episode, we get to hear the story of one of our own who conceptualized a solution to a problem he found and seeks to make it part of our norm. Here's my conversation with the man behind the Northern Star, Jeff Dykes. Hey, Jeff. Yes, sir. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Good, good. It's good to finally hear your voice. We've been back and forth a little bit about making this happen, and uh, nice that we're finally able to talk. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's start where we usually start. Let's start with where you grew up and family structure and how that was growing up. Yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the suburbs out there. Had a typical upbringing, you know, mom and dad, blue-collar workers, going to work Monday through Friday, early in the day to late at night. Um, my younger sister was uh, maybe a half dozen years uh, younger than me, lived in a modest house, um, had a bunch of dogs, and I went to school, chased girls, and played sports. But as typical as it gets. What sports were you into? I was a big baseball guy. I enjoyed playing football. My favorite sport was basketball. I just wasn't overly good at it. I really gravitated toward baseball. Um, I did well from an early age and actually played up through college on a full-ride uh, baseball scholarship and then actually did a little bit of post-college amateurish type of ball. And still to this day, I coach high school and done some college coaching. And most of my summer nights are spent at the ballpark somewhere around town here coaching kids at various levels. Anything on your own outside of team sports? No, not really. When you're into it as deep as I am, <laughs> um, as far as baseball goes, you know, my kids are still in ball right now. So it's October and we're heading over to the cities here this weekend for a tournament. And uh, that'll roll right into basketball for the kids because, you know, I got a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 10-year-old. So we're right in the thick of it, as most people of my age are. And baseball rolls into basketball. Basketball rolls into spring baseball. And uh, and away we go. Kids like football. They just never really got into it, which I don't blame them. Getting hit around in the field was not my favorite thing in the world to do either, but we like to watch it. Everything in my world has sort of been team sports. I, I like the other stuff. You know, I enjoy to try to golf. I, I'm really bad at it. But the whole thing for me is anytime you can get out there and compete on anything. I don't care if we're doing table tennis or golf or horseshoes. I, I just like to compete. Um, that's just it's just sort of in my nature. Speaking of nature, do you have uh, access to that easily? Do you get out and hunt or fish? Yeah, you know, growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the concrete jungle, I mean, it's not a huge town, but it, it, it's there. You know, moving up here to Eau Claire, which is an hour east of Minneapolis, it's often referred to as God's country. I live on three acres of woods. I have deer in my backyard. I'm an hour from my tree stand. I'm an hour from my duck blind. Heading up to Lake of the Woods next week to go fishing. I'm headed out to North Dakota last week to do fishing. So there's a lot of hunting and fishing up here. A lot of outdoor opportunities to hike and mountain bike. And Eau Claire is a really unique place in the fact that you know we're only 60 some thousand people in this town. We really don't have suburbs. There's a couple small towns around us, but. In 20 minute drive, you're in the middle of it. I mean, you, you can put a kayak into Eau Claire River and, and float for many, many hours and not see anyone or anything. It's just, it's just gorgeous. I'm pretty sure one of my favorite bands is from Eau Claire. Who would that be? Bonnie Vare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 
Justin and uh, Zach are sort of the two hip and upcoming people around here. Those two have single-handedly regenerated the downtown area. It used to be sort of a a dump, a homeless place, uh, not a lot of businesses. And now you go down there and it is just booming with vibrant stores, bands, hotels. There's just so much to do up here now. And, And I really attribute it to both of those guys for putting their money and their time to rebuild the downtown area. And now you go down there on a weekend and you can't find a parking spot. There's people on every single corner eating ice cream, listening to bands, playing in the different water fountains. It, it, it's a cool place. That's so wicked. Yeah, my girlfriend and I are seeing them in October at the Scotiabank Arena here, their first stadium tour. It's like an art installation and revamped how they do the audio in stadiums. So I'm just out of my mind to go and see them in a stadium setting. I've seen them in smaller venues, but uh, it's going to be an experience. You know, it's cool when normal people, let's call them normal people, when they have success, and they stay normal (laughs) and and they put their money back into the communities and there's still people that you want to go have a beer with. That's what those guys have done. And even though they're younger than me, I I really sort of aspire to be like that. You know, with this company I started, I'm looking to become that person that can stay normal. Um, First, I have to make some money. But uh, if I ever do get to that point, I want to be able to get back to the community and become that normal people that people want to hang out with. What were your first jobs before you got up to the fire service? I had a sort of a cool upbringing. Um, my dad, you know, he passed away last summer, but when I was a kid, he used to tell me, you have the rest of your life to work, Jeff. As long as you stay out of the drugs, get good grades and aren't a jerk off, I'll give you the money to take your girl on a date. I'll give you some gas money to keep in the car. Just go have fun and be a kid. So that was all through high school. I didn't have to go out and do the normal uh, pavement pounding and hard labor that a lot of people have done through high school. You know, I really appreciate it at the time and I'm trying to pass it along to my kids. As long as you, you know, play by those rules and have a good work ethic. So when I got to college, everything changes, of course, because then you're sort of out on your own. So I, uh, I got a job at Pepsi Cola, delivering Pepsi machines and going to the state fair and Summerfest down in Milwaukee and, and keeping the machines full. And it was a hard job. I mean, you're humping those big tanks of syrup all over the place. But it was sort of fun, too, because you and another guy your age who are out there working hard, but you're not underneath the thumb of the man. You're out there uh, with a little bit of independence. So that, that was a really great job. You did a bit of a stint in bank collections, you mentioned? Yeah, that was that was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I graduated college on what's best probably described as a baseball scholarship. I went to college to play baseball. I did end up getting a, a degree in communications, which I never thought I would use as much as I did, but I just wasn't exactly sure you know, right when I came out of college is when I sort of discovered the fire service, but you don't just jump into the fire service. So I took a job with bank one and I was doing collections. So my job was to sit there in, in one of these call centers and just call and call and call and try to squeeze, you know, blood out of the stone from all these poor people that were behind on their accounts. And quite frankly, I, I did really well at it because I, I sort of took the soft approach where you just, you know, Hey, I'm new to this. How can we work together? How can we, you know, get a couple of dollars here and there? And you know, they see you coming a mile away. You're a new college graduate. They made me the offer of, uh, you can either make 22 grand a year, which at that time I'm like, whoa, 22 grand. That's amazing. I'm going to be rich. Or they said you can work on a commission, but they said, you know, we don't know how good you're going to be. Well, of course I'm the dummy. So I took the 22 grand a year and I only worked there for three months, but I should have gotten 22 grand in those three months. Cause I was so good at uh, getting those commissions in. So Um, It only lasted three months, thank God. I think I would have jumped off a bridge if if it was any longer than that. But um, I remember when I got that first call from the fire chief offering me a job, I was actually at the bank in this call center. 
know, this is pre-cell phone and everything. So I must have given him my direct line to this call center or something. And he called me up and he goes, hey, this is Chief Kaiser. I want to congratulate you. We're going to offer you employment with our fire department. (laughs) I remember standing up, taking off my headphones and going, I quit. (laughs) And I set it down and walked right out of there. And of course, you know, there's so much conflict and tension in these call centers when you're collecting. My bosses are thinking, oh God, he had a bad call. You know, he got into a fight with a customer. This happens all the time. No, 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 Jeff. Uh, It's okay. It's just one bad call. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I I quit. (laughs) I got a job. It was a great call. It was a great call. You know what really screwed me though is, uh, they just offered me the job. They didn't tell me the start date. So I got up and I walked out and the next day when I finally got the, the detailed information, they're like, yeah, your start date's in about three months. And I'm like, Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a job for three months. So I patched together some little things here and there to make the ends meet. But at least I knew I had that first foot in the door. It's what we're, a lot of, you know, new cadets are looking for is that, that foot in the door. How many other people in that call center wish they could stand up and quit too? I don't know. Um, I talked to very few of them, you know, afterwards because I was there for such a short period of time. But actually, a couple of people that worked there um, were high school classmates of mine. And and at the reunions, you know, they they sort of laughed like, yeah, I I remember that. That was uh, that was a unique time. Who were your mentors and guides growing up? Well, you know, mom and dad, first and foremost, they set the precedence getting up every single morning and and going to work. My dad hated his job. He worked at a tool and die company down in uh, Cudahy, Wisconsin. He made no bones about it. He did not like going to work. But when you see a guy do that, I think he worked there for 40 years. He took a couple of years off for Vietnam. But other than that, every morning he'd get up and go to work. And every day he'd come home, not pissed off, but disgruntled, you know, didn't have a good day. And every morning he got up and did it again. And there's something to be said for that because it doesn't matter what occupation you get into. I don't care how great your fire department is or your station is. You're going to have good days and bad days that that morale is going to ebb and flow. The point being is that you just do it. I mean, you understand what your obligation is. You understand what your duty is and you put your shoes on, you go to work, you do the best you can. And if it's a bad day, you put it behind you and move on. Other than that, my very first captain with Kenosha Fire was Captain Wachowskis. Soft-spoken man, wasn't really a hard charger as far as, you know, discipline and things like that go, but he had this sense about him, this control over his guys. That it was just that unspoken respect that people showed him and I showed him and then in return he showed them. And uh, I learned a lot by just observing him and just seeing how he interacted with the guys and how they responded to him. Because we've all had the bad officers that you learn like, I'm never going to do that because that guy's an asshole. And then you have those good officers where you're like, I want that type of respect. And I wonder, how do I get to that stature? And uh, Wachowskis was certainly one of them. Uh, the other guy was Rick Merrifield. Uh, it was up here in Eau Claire soft-spoken guy. Uh, when he's on the radio, you couldn't tell if he was on the scene of a nine-story high-rise structure fire or a stub toe. Just cool, calm, collected, calculated. Rick didn't have an enemy in the world. He could somehow tell you that you were doing something wrong or discipline you and have you thank him by the end of the conversation. And uh, that's a special trait that he had. It means more coming from someone like that. For sure, for sure. You respect their opinion a thousand times over. What was your first exposure to the fire service? Well, you know, in Milwaukee, we grew up immediately next door to a fire station. So um, when I was practicing my baseball, I remember my dad was uh, spray paint a strike zone on the side of the fire station wall. And when he was uh, changing the oil or doing a break job, he'd give me a baseball and say, go throw it against the side wall there a hundred times and come back and tell me when you got a hundred strikes. And in hindsight, I'm going, man, I don't even know how to change the oil in my car. <laughs> I, I have no idea how to do a break job. So even to this day in my forties, I'm paying people to do that. But, I did get a full ride to go play baseball. So I guess it sort of worked out. 
but you know, when you grow up literally right next to a fire station and talk to those guys sitting on the front stoop um, every night, I think it was almost sort of like osmosis. I didn't realize that I was being drawn to it, even though they were right there. One of my favorite stories to tell is I was young. Um, you know, back in those days, summertime when you're a kid out of school, so I had to have been probably a kindergartner or first grader. You know, mom and dad just sort of told you, stay in the yard, we're going to go to work, and the neighbor person would sort of watch over you type of thing. That's how you did it back <laughs> in the, you know, 70s and 80s. Nowadays, you can never get away with that. But um, there was a girl down the street, and, you know, you're a super young kid. You know, it wasn't a sexual type of thing, but it's like, ah, adults do stuff in their bedrooms that I'm not sure what they do, but I want to be an adult today. So I go and grab this girl and we go into my mom and dad's bedroom and throw this old rusty deadbolt, which has to say something about my mom and dad. They have a deadbolt on their bedroom door, (laughs) but we go into the bedroom, we throw this deadbolt and we sat down and I remember thinking, well, now what? I mean, okay, well that wasn't very eventful. Who's supposed to place more? Well, the deadbolt wouldn't open and we're trapped in mom and dad's bedroom. So as a young kid who sort of panicked. I threw open the window and started yelling out, fire, fire, fire. And all those guys in the front stoop next door heard that, took it as legit, jumped in our truck, drove the whole 150 feet around the corner. Uh, It's a duplex. So the front door was locked. That one came crashing down. And then the actual door into our unit came crashing down. And then the door into the bedroom came crashing down. Uh, They're busting them open with axes. And then I walked out and said, thanks. <laughs> and my mom says she remembers this day. She got home and parked in front of the house and all the neighbors were like slowly converging on her because they didn't want her to get to the front door and see that all of her doors have been destroyed. But that was probably my very first true memorable encounter with the fire department. But as you fast forward a bunch of years, when I knew this is where I was going, when, when that moment hit me. I was delivering those Pepsi machines in the summer during college, and I was working through my baseball career, still having aspirations of playing in the major leagues. I was delivering a Pepsi machine to a Milwaukee fire station. Me and Bobby Jackson was my partner's name, a cool cat down there, a Milwaukee inner city guy. You got these Milwaukee firefighters. It's an old station. They got the old couch that's sitting out in the apparatus bay, and they're playing Nintendo. And the guys in the back are eating brats. I'm going, what the hell is this? This is my job. <laughs> How do I play Nintendo and eat brats for a living? So we're set up the Pepsi machine, got chatting with the guys a little bit. And a second later, the bell goes off. And shoes are flying. Guys are materializing down poles. And in a blink of an eye, they're out the door. And I had that adrenaline drop that we always get, you know, when that fire comes in. And I went, what the hell just happened? That was pretty cool. And then on the way to our next drop-off for the Pepsi machines, we drove by the house that these guys were working in. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You get to play Nintendo, eat brats, and then do cool shit, you know, <laughs> a second later and be put on this social pedestal by the citizens that you're serving. So at that point in time, I said, yep, that's what I'm doing. That's what I want to do. I just hadn't pursued it. So here I am a junior in college and I didn't really know how to pursue that. So I got out of college, I got my bachelor's degree, and I did the traditional thing. You know, I went to Beloit Fire Department, I went to Milwaukee Fire Department, actually went to the Racine Sheriff's Department and started applying. And I also went to the Kenosha Fire Department because my college was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So it was just easy for me to drop an application out there. And they brought me in. And most of the times you look around the room, you're taking a written test of, you know, back in those days, it was a couple hundred people, easy. And everyone had their volunteer fire shirts on from their different agencies. And here's me. I never touched the fire hose in my life. I had no experience whatsoever. So I wrote the test and Kenosha calls me in for an interview. 
And I come up with this pyramid theory. And I said, listen, guys, if you look at someone's career as a pyramid, all these tech school guys that you want to hire here have a pyramid that's probably halfway constructed, but their base is only maybe 12 inches wide. And they're going to be plug and play candidates for you. You're going to give them their training. They're going to do well for you. And they're going to be career long employees. But I go, my base, because I have a four-year degree, because I started my own honor society, because I was a captain of the college baseball team, and I have all these other outside experiences, I go, my base is like five feet wide, so much wider than theirs. But I don't know jack shit about the fire service. I'm not halfway constructed. I'm an inch off the ground. But if you give me the knowledge and you give me the ability to learn, over the course of my career, my pyramid is going to be significantly taller with a greater foundation because when you start talking about height, a pyramid can only get so tall and my base is four times the size of theirs. So tell me what I need to know. Give me the education that I need and watch me in 30 years surpass all of them. And they stopped and they bought it. (laughs) Surprisingly (laughs) enough, they bought it and they hired 11 people on that class. And four of them uh, were in theory underneath my Pyramid Theory. Uh, Cindy Hare was a college star athlete, power lifter out of Indiana State, I think she was from. Harry Tolbert came out of the inner city of Chicago, sort of fought his way out of that depression and went to college and was the fraternity president. And Dan Tilden was a four-year degree out of GB, I think, uh, Green Bay, and was an Army Reserve captain. All of us had no fire experience. And then the other guys in our class were all the tech school guys. And when you get down there, They start you over at fire one. It doesn't matter what you have. They're going to teach you their way. So I was never really put through a fire one class or a fire certification class. I was just put through the Kenosha way class, if you will. And that's all I really knew. And I stayed with Kenosha for about four or five years and then met my wife in college. And she's originally from Eau Claire and she wanted to move back home. And I visited up here and realized that, man, I can hunt 10 minutes from my back door and I'm going to have deer in my backyard. This is where people take weeks of vacation to visit, and I'm going to live here. So I pulled the trigger, interviewed up here, got the job, and away we went. That uh, pyramid theory makes you think of the movie Armageddon with Bruce Willis, where they take drillers and turn them into astronauts. (laughs) Why didn't they just take astronauts and teach them how to drill? Exactly. As I've progressed through my career, and I was a union president, and sat on a lot of interview boards and stuff like that, it goes to hiring the person more than the piece of paper. One of my jobs now is I run a hiring process up here. So I have departments from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is Long Lake, Michigan, all the way over onto the west side of the state. So about 15 large municipal fire departments come through my hiring process. And I do this on behalf of the local text college where we establish eligibility lists for all these departments. I run a CPAD. I got a website. Um, You pass the CPAD. I give you the ergometrics fire team exam. I test your smarts and then I develop a list and I just go here, fire chief, here's a list of people that want to work for you. Here's their test scores. They're physically fit. They pass the CPAT interview and hire as you see fit. So I'm really into that side of it. And as candidate numbers have just really dropped, I mean, every year it gets worse and worse and worse. A lot of times it's due to the minimum requirements. The departments don't have the funds anymore. So they're tacking these minimum requirements on just to take an application out because they want quality plug-and-play candidates, but there's just not a lot of firefighter, paramedic, officer, one hazmat people walking around downtown looking for a job. They're just not. So on that pyramid theory topic, it goes a lot more toward hiring the right person 
and then training them the way you need them to be trained. Hire the right attitude, hire the right work ethic, and then get them to where they need to be rather than hire this piece of paper that looks great. And then you get them in the station and they're a complete bozo. They don't know how to talk to people. They don't have a good work ethic. They're in it for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we get a little bit backwards in that hiring process. And it all, I mean, everything in our world is driven by money. Our budget is driven by money. Our stations are driven by money. And our hiring process is driven by money. Because if you had money available and had time available, you probably would hire the person and train them. But we just don't have those resources anymore. Taxes are down and revenues are down. So we hire the best possible person that we can plug in and play. And oftentimes that's not the best person in that candidate pool. It's just the best person with a piece of paper. So that makes me think of from both sides of the interview table for the panel or the chief that's interviewing the candidates and they don't have the benefit of being handed a list of people that are good for them from someone that they trust like yourself. Mm -hmm. How do they in that short period of time, get a feel for the person and not the paper? How do they not get snowed by someone that just interviews well? Yeah. So to be clear, I don't recommend hires. I just give them an eligibility list and say, here's their test scores. Okay. But when I used to work for Eau Claire, I knew who got their applications in late. I know who called me with really boneheaded questions that were focused on money and pensions and not on the actual job or the service. So I could get a feel for them as I interacted with these people, but that wasn't my job. My job was just through the eligibility list. But to your question, how do you get around that? It's difficult. I mean, you get what, 15, maybe 30 minutes in that room with that candidate. You ask them questions that they probably know you're already going to ask them. So they already have their canned answers. They prepare There's classes and books and webinars and all this stuff out there to how to interview well in the fire service. I think you got to get them outside their comfort zone and you got to ask them questions that they're not ready for. And at least in some of the more recent interviews that the Eau Claire fire department used to do when I worked there, they would purposely generate tension. doesn't matter what answer you give them. They would try to take the opposite side of that answer um, and try to see how you reacted to the fact that a fire chief or a deputy chief or something just took an opposing viewpoint to whatever answer you gave them. It wasn't the fact that you gave them the wrong answer. It was how you reacted to that tension. That's sort of a unique trend that's going on. The other thing that I see a lot of departments doing, or I think it's really nice, is they actually have 24, 48, or 72-hour interviews where they're saying, you're going to ride with one of our trucks on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday next week. It's all part of the interview. You're going to eat with the crews. You're going to help wash the truck. It's basically a mini internship. And they're watching for the work ethic. They're watching for how you interact with people. They're watching for the it factor. You know, just does he get it? <laughs> I, I like to say that the it factor is one of the most elusive attributes that a candidate can have. And it goes all the way back to the Supreme Court ruling many years ago when they ruled on pornography. And the Supreme Court said, pornography is very hard to define, but you know when you see it. When I heard that, I went, that's exactly what the it factor is for a candidate. I can't define it for you. We can talk about it all day long, but when you see it, you know it. That guy gets it. He knows when to shut up. He knows when to speak. He knows how to take a ribbing. He knows how to give just enough ribbing back not to get run over and be bullied. He knows how to be first in line, when to volunteer, not to be a suck ass, but also to be first in line. There's all those little nonverbal attributes that come to being a candidate 
that make you successful. And with my new job now, so my new job is working for the local tech college. I've taught there since 2000 as an adjunct, but now I took a full-time role as their lead fire inspector. And I'm getting ready for my first associate's degree cohort coming in on January. And my vision for this, when I talked to my dean, I said, if you want me to do this job, we need to run the classic fire station because these are people that are coming through and their only goal is to get hired on a large municipal fire department. They're not looking to be a volunteer in a rural fire department. They're looking to work for a 50,000 population city with six stations type of thing. That's what they're looking for. So we're going to teach all those soft skills. And I told the candidates that are signing up to get in this program, I go, before class starts, you're going to put your gear on a truck. You're going to do a pack check. You're going to do a rig check. You're going to do inventories. You're going to clean the refrigerator. You're going to mop the floor. You're going to scrub the crapper that the law enforcement students just blew up in there. These are your jobs. This is the job of a firefighter. And more importantly, it's the job of a probationary firefighter. When you get on that job as a probie, you're most likely going to be evaluated on all of that soft stuff. It's a little bit of, yes, can you start an IV? Do you know how to do a patient assessment? Can you stretch a hose line? Do you know the working end of a ladder? That stuff gets assessed too. But for the most part, because we don't go on a lot of fires and because your job as a probie is not to take a lead in a lot of those calls, you're being assessed on, are you working hard? Can you find work? One of my lesson plans for this new cohort coming in is for two hours, I'm not going to give them anything to do. There is no assignment. Your only assignment is to look busy. The college is your playground. Find something to do and find something meaningful to do. And you're going to be evaluated on your ability to do that. And as I spread this message around to the fire chief saying, hey, this is who I am. This is my new job. This is what I'm going to be doing for the fire service. And I want you as a fire chief to recognize that certification that comes across your desk as a Chippewa Valley Technical College fire medic student. I want you to stamp that right away, knowing that I'm giving you a candidate that's been through all these things and they should be a plug and play. They are tried and true. They have been evaluated in all those soft skills in addition to be given, you know, the psychomotor skills of raising a ladder and extending a hose line and things like that. It's very much needed in the fire service to teach those soft skills. And I'm hoping that I can sort of get this fire medic program to where we want it to be. Yeah. It's amazing if they're going to give you the leeway to do that. Yeah. Right now, I have some really good coworkers that believe in that. A lot of my coworkers are, have been in the municipal fire departments, so they live that, and we're all sort of on the same page. So it's going to be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's looking to the health of the service as a whole and not just filling spots. Yeah. I mean, we had a state test up here not too long ago. We have anywhere from 10 to 15 instructors. So these are guys that have been in the business for a while and they're sitting in the commons in their turnout gear eating pizza. And I'm going, wait a second. There's not a fire station in the world that I know of right now that doesn't have some type of cancer presumptive policy where turnout gear does not go into the firehouse itself. It's an epidemic. So how in the world are we teaching our students that it's okay for a fire instructor to not only bring his turnout gear into the commons, and the commons is sort of where the food is and stuff like that at the college, but then to sit there and eat your pizza with your dirty hands that you just got done you know, running around in a house burn with. So we're implementing those same cancer reduction policies that you're seeing in the fire station into the college. That's part of it. And the other part is the physical fitness. The amount of people that can't pass the CPAT is mind-boggling. They think it's going to be easy. And I think a lot of it is they look at the fire service and they see – those people on our department, 
that are 350 pounds and have to have special turnout gear made for them. And they're going, well, if that guy can do it, I suppose I can do it. And they're failing at a pretty high rate. So we're going to be installing some really progressive and focused physical fitness requirements into the program where you're going to be in the gym and you're going to be, you know, building your cardiovascular strength, your flexibility, your muscle strength, all those things to make sure that you're successful, not only passing the CPAT, but my goal is to bring in the culinary people to teach these students how to cook healthy and cheap and quick. Because when you get to the fire station, most of the departments around here are running at full capacity. They're running multiple calls a day and they rarely have time to run out to the store, get food and come back and cook as a crew. Although they should, and they, and they should try, um, they don't have that time. So they end up throwing a frozen pizza in the oven and that's the quickest and easiest way to do it. So, um, so we're going to bring in culinary people to teach these students how to cook healthy, how to cook cheap, and then they can take those skills back into their fire departments and hopefully let that grow. And if it doesn't grow, at least we're starting at the bottom and we're trying to infiltrate these people back in the fire service so we can become a healthier, more fit service. I think you've touched on three of the major things that we can do to actually keep us safer. Cancer prevention, physical fitness, and then with that, nutrition. We need to progress. We need to evolve as a service. I'm not by any means the vision of a physically fit firefighter, but I did pass the CPAT this year. I took it just to make sure I could do it. So at least I'm the oldest person I know around this region that's passed the CPAT. And I'm I'm pretty damn proud of that. I don't know if I could do it today. I trained for it, but we need to evolve that way. And it has to start at the lower ranks. There has to be a buy-in. Social media has been awesome. The Fit for Fire guys and all these other groups that are out there in social media pushing physical fitness. My friends over at Blast Mask that, that put the mask, uh, the, the cartridge on your mask. We got them at the college. I see them at every single trade show. They're great guys. Um, they're very passionate about what they're doing. There's a thousand different ways to do it, and there's a big movement behind it. And usually, uh, if we had to sort of generalize where the friction is coming from, it's usually from the older people in our fire services who just don't want to adapt to the change. So one of the biggest discussion marks out there is, should physical fitness be mandatory or should it be optional? Yeah, that was my next question to you. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Being a union president back in the day, we had a very young department at that point in time. We had a lot of turnover, a lot of retirements. And if there was ever going to be a time that we were going to be able to implement mandatory physical fitness, it was that time because we had young people. And when you're young, you're like, hell yeah, let's go. I can do this. But you go talk to the guy who's, you know, 52 years old and he's going, <laughs> I've done this. You know, my job is to drive the truck. And I do that really good. Get out of my way, kid. I'm going to go back and watch Game of Thrones or read my book. So I took it to my chief and I said, hey, we got the backing. It's going to have to come down to a union vote. But I know we're young enough that we have the majority. All the discussions that I hear that revolve around this topic stop at punitive. So, you know, the question is, is if they don't do it, what's the punitive response? And from the union side of things, I'm like, you can't punish a guy for not working out. And their response was, well, if it's not punitive, then we're not going to back it. Meaning we're not going to give you time during the day to work out. We're not going to give you the resources and the materials and the weights in the room. And then you have this whole risk management thing. We had a risk manager here in the city for a while who said, I don't want you working out on duty. I remember the conversation where he said, if you drop a weight on your foot and you break your foot while you're lifting weights on duty, that's not workers' comp. And I'm like, of course it's workers' comp. What are you talking about? No, no, no. He says, 
You should be working out on your off day. That's your own personal thing. It has nothing to do with the fire service. So, you know, here you have HR pulling that stuff. You have chiefs who want to punish people if they don't do stuff. I think maybe the answer is, is A, of course it's workers' comp. So let's just take that and put it off on the side. That's just crazy talk. But on the punitive side, if you're going to give me that hour, let's just say from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m., that's our workout hour, the answer should be you should work out. And if you're not going to work out, you have to move. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you walk around the station. I don't care if you wash the truck. I don't care if you mop the floor. What you can't do is sit with your feet up watching Jeopardy. Get out of the chair. Be physically moving. And for the guys who want to be better and be healthier, yeah, they're lifting weights. They're running. They're, they're doing all their flexibility, strengthening exercises. But the guys who don't want to do that, the answer is just don't sit down. Find something to do where you're up moving around. How hard is it to go walk around the station for an hour? Put a podcast in and put this podcast in <laughs> and, and walk around. So maybe that's the answer, but there's so many different, you know, you have the union side, you have the HR side, you have the management side, and those stars are not lining up right now. And, and I wish they would. And I think they need to. Yeah, the sitting down should be recovery from the physical effort that you've put out. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... We have people that are in it for the right reasons. We have people who at six o'clock at night are reading blogs, who are listening to podcasts, who are practicing the ropes and knots. And we have other guys who are looking for the lazy boy at two o'clock in the afternoon because they quote unquote fulfilled their job description and they're on cruise control. Similar to the NFL, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse because everyone else is getting better. So maybe we are tackling it the way we should, like you said, with Fit to Fight Fire and all these great social media ventures and us talking from a grassroots peer pressure, basically. We need to change the culture ourselves from inside, put the pressure on our people because it's not going to come from anywhere else. Yeah, I think it's the kangaroo court. We have to hold ourselves accountable. The Chiefs are not going to do it. You know, the other angle on this whole thing is the health insurance portion. Health insurance is a pain in the city's butt, in the management's butt because of the cost. You know, when I was bargaining all these contracts, they talk about, well, we'll give you a discount membership to a gym and we'll, you know, throw you 50 bucks if you can run a mile and a half in, you know, whatever minutes. And so why don't you, instead of throwing money away, why don't you hire some chefs to come into the fire station and cook for us and cook a healthy, nutritious, high protein meal that A, doesn't cost an arm and a leg and more importantly, tastes good. And then when you're done, leave that recipe with us. Mm -hmm. And we're more likely to pull that recipe out and do it again rather than making a meatloaf with mashed potatoes and gravy over the top with biscuits on the side, give us the option because a lot of times we just don't know. And the nutrition is such a high percentage of fitness. If you can tackle that portion, you're leaps and bounds ahead. I am far from a nutritional expert, far, far, far from it. But if you read the research and the studies and talk to some really smart people, they often say it's 80% of what you put in your body and 20% exercise. Mm -hmm. So to go out there and run and run and run and lift and lift and lift, you're only achieving, if you do that perfectly, you're only achieving 20% of your potential. The rest of it is what you're putting in your body. Any physical challenges you've faced over the years in the service? Oh, <laughs> yeah. February 17th, 1997. So I was on the job with Kenosha for five months and 28 days when I was playing basketball with their team in some inner city league. And some guy comes and shoves me in the back. And long story short, I destroy my knee. It bends in the wrong direction, broke the tibia, the fibia, the uh, head of the femur, the hamstring tore, the ACL, the PCL. Um, they all detached and tore. It was just a, basically a hanging appendage at that point in time. And I remember Chief Kaiser drove me into the ER 
And the yard doc in front of the chief said, you're never going to walk again. Your fire career is over. Ugh. And I went, I, you know, just, you know, you break down in tears. I've only been on a job for five months. I felt so fortunate and thankful that they gave me that job with the pyramid theory. And here it's over with because some guy in inner city rec wanted a t-shirt worse than me. So I battled through the union down there, went to bat for me big time and said, this is a quality guy. We want him here. You don't have a ton of sick time built up. Kenosha at that time had unlimited sick leave policy. They might still have it today. I honestly don't know. But every January 1st, you got a full boat of sick time, and that sick time would carry you for a year. And the theory was is that if you're not counting the days, if you don't have a bank where you're like trying to save up for retirement or something like that, you don't call in sick as much because you don't view them as a benefit that you could potentially use or abuse because you can call in sick every day if you want. And then they reviewed it at the end of the year. And if you abuse that system, then that right was taken away from you. So long story short, I went to work rehabbing, took me over six months, four surgeries, physical fitness every single day. That was terribly painful, but I made it back to work. They kept saying, you know, you're never going to run. You got to bike and swim. Jogging is horrible for you. And I'll be honest, the first five years post-surgery were tough. Even when I got up to Kenosha, I had a knee surgery almost immediately because I went back to pitching up here and played some uh, competitive baseball. And, and that left knee, the, my injured knee was my plant leg. So that gave me some problems. So I had to have another surgery. But knock on wood, I'm in my mid-40s right now. And I can go jog. I can run. I rarely think about my knee at all anymore. It was just a fluke accident that took me a long time to recover. And I'm incredibly thankful. Other than the knee the other injuries that always plague me and like they plague most firefighters are back injuries. Um, we can talk all day long about lifting in the proper position and bend with your knees and all this other stuff. But when your patient's 350 pounds and they're in a bathtub and you can't fit a cup of water around them without spilling over the edge, there is no good lifting position. You know, being a paramedic, I spent 10 plus years on the LS ambulance and you're running your butt off and if you do this job long enough, you're probably going to start forming some back problems. So I've had back problems throughout my career. You know, my back would go out once a year or something like that. And as I got older, it became harder for my muscles to recuperate from that. And a lot of that goes back to that flexibility and physical fitness. The job's not easy on us. And that's why at least these last several years when I used to work for Eau Claire, I worked my way up through the ranks of engineer, lieutenant, and captain. But those last couple of years were easier on me because it was a lot more of a mental game. It was a lot more of coming up with an incident action plan and ensuring everyone's doing their job and making sure the resources were set and all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted rather than be the guy who's on the end of the nozzle and tearing walls and things like that. You're still inside, but a lot of times you're telling people what to do rather than doing it yourself. And that really prolonged my career as well. Injuries are hard mentally at any point in your career, but when it just started and you've worked so hard to get there, it's a whole other animal. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a pretty good prelude. I don't know where you want to take the conversation, but that's a pretty good prelude into education. Having that education in your back pocket that's going to allow you to maintain your lifestyle and not sell your house and cars if you need to leave the fire service for an injury is a huge benefit. I was lucky enough to obtain my bachelor's degree prior to even entering into the fire service. And once I learned that my department would uh, compensate me for the tuition and the books and really pay for the majority of that educational expense, I pursued my master's degree after that and was able to get that as well. So it's important for our guys to get that education. I had to come up with a thesis for my master's. And if you have a choice, you can do what they call a plan B or a plan A thesis. A B is basically taking other people's research, 
and reconfiguring it to fit your department or your vision or your need and come up with some new information. Or you can do a plan A, which is basically research has never been done before. And I decided to do a plan A. And the title of my thesis was The Role of Formal Education in the Fire Service. I knew I was passionate about it. My master's degree was in education. So I went around and I talked to many, 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 many fire chiefs and asked them, if you could go tap little firefighter Tommy on the head and tell them to go back and get their bachelor's degree, what major would you want them to pursue and why? And then secondly, how do you see a lieutenant with a bachelor's degree performing differently from a lieutenant without a bachelor's degree? And then I flipped that on his head and I went and I talked to all these junior firefighters. So firefighters that had less than, I think it was less than five years on the job that were actively in a baccalaureate program and asking them what their major was, why they chose it, and then how they envisioned themselves using it both on and off the job later in their career as well in retirement. And I talked to a lot of people. And I probably went in with some preconceived ideas of what I was going to find, and they were not true at all. And to summarize the whole entire thing for you, uh, which is, I think it's a 250-page document that I really should write an executive summary and post it in fire engineering or something, because I think it's really useful. The junior firefighters were out there, and they're pursuing baccalaureate degrees in fire science. That's primarily what they're doing. It's called the FIRM program, uh, Fire Emergency Rescue Management or something like that over at UW Oshkosh here in Wisconsin. A lot of people were in that one. And they say, well, I'm going I'm to use it for promotion. It's going to make me a better officer. I'm not sure how I'll use it outside the job, but you know, having a bachelor's degree is a piece of paper. And those are all fair statements. But when I went to talk to the chiefs, most of their answers were anything but fire science. And I said, well, <laughs> what does that mean? And they go, business administration, risk management, education all these things that are outside of the fire service. And it was best summarized. I had the quote in my paper, and I use it quite a bit by Jack Bowles, who's the Menominee Fire Chief here in Wisconsin. He says, if we have firefighters who have an associate's degree in fire science, and then they go back and they pursue a baccalaureate degree in fire science, all we're doing is bringing in the same information, the same theories, the same background studies, and we're just regurgitating it over and over and over again. He said, what we need is we need our people to go out there and study risk management and public administration and education. And he had a bunch of other ones and learn about those disciplines and bring those theories back into the fire service and let us evolve based on what other disciplines are doing. And that made perfect sense to me. It was clear once I heard it, but it wasn't what I was going to look for. As I've talked to many, many of these young firefighters, I said, before you decide on your program, go talk to your fire chief and have that conversation on what he would recommend you getting your degree in. What's the worst case scenario? I mean, you'll be on his radar. He's going to know that you're passionate about it. He's going to understand that you want to better yourself. It's a win, 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 win for that cadet to go in there and ask their fire chief what he recommends. But keep in mind that that fire chief that's giving you that recommendation is not the guy that's going to promote you in 10 to 15 years. He'll be gone. So it's probably worthwhile also then talking to some of your you know, lieutenants and captains who have that upward mobility in their careers to see what they think as well. So it was a really cool study. And the other thing that I learned was that the smaller the department you are on, the more important formal education is. If you're working for Chicago, if you're a 10-year guy in Chicago and you're maybe an up-and-coming lieutenant, you're not being asked to write policy. You're not being asked to conduct training. You're not being asked to 
figure out JPRs, job performance requirements, and align them with certain curriculum. You're not being asked to do any of that stuff. You're just asked to go in the truck and do your job. Whereas if you work for a small department like Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, or, or Jack Bowes' Menominee, Wisconsin, where you have 27 guys, and you're a 10-year guy in the department, regardless of your rank, a lot of those tasks get pushed down to you because they just don't have the resources and management to conduct all that stuff. Another thing where you just sort of go, of course that is, but I don't know if we've ever really sat down and studied it and talked about it. Um, so the smaller department, the more important that formal education can be. I had never thought about it until you just mentioned it. And, and it sort of makes sense, right? Completely. This is why we need to have conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you have an opportunity, um, a lot of my students here at the Tech College, they're going to walk out the door with their associate's degree program. I said, get on your department, get your foot in the door, do a good job, represent the college well. And then after you're off probation and, and you're sort of in your rhythm, which is going to probably take you, let's just say, two to three years, get together with your union rep, read your contract, talk to your chiefs and figure out what their educational policy is and what their reimbursement program is and get going on it. Because the longer you delay, if you're 24 years old, trust me, you have time. <laughs> you have time to go back and crank out four credits a semester. Wait till you have a wife and three kids in daycare and now you're running around with your head cut off like a chicken with colds and all the cesspools that the daycares are. And now you're sick and your money's going out the window. Now you don't have the time. So just install that lifelong learning theory from the beginning. Plan on taking two to four credits every single semester and just continue on, plug away. And by the time you need it, it will be done because that's the way the fire service is trending that a lot of these departments the prerequisite to write the lieutenant's exam is going to be a bachelor's degree. And if you wait until you have five years left before you think you might want to be a lieutenant, it's too late. You can't go to school full-time without quitting a job. So chip it away early and get some of the generals out of the way. Um, hopefully you have an associate's degree that most of that stuff should transfer over so you're close to halfway there anyways. Find that degree, talk to your chiefs, and get plugged in at it right away. And then in the event, the unfortunate event that you become injured, now you're sitting there with a bachelor's degree on public administration, and who knows where that can take you. But at least you have options, and you're not going to be out there you know, digging ditches or delivering Pepsi machines in the summer. Yeah, so it's possible to have an all-in passion for the fire service, but you can also have a second passion that if you had to choose, that you could have a healthy and happy, fulfilling life doing for your career. So have that other pillar there as a, I guess you could see it as a fallback. You can call it whatever you want, but... It's just a second option, and you only become a better person for it. But mentally, it'll be a lot less traumatic if you have to walk away from the service before you were ready. You know, I remember the day I was washing truck nine at uh, Eau Claire Station, and one of my mentors out of the tech school who held the position I'm currently holding before me, her name is Marcy Blueflat, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman who built the tech college program, the fire medic program from the ground up here in Wisconsin. And is really a national leader in it. We are the very, very first in the nation to have a fire medic associate's degree. So when you walk out the door, you have all your fire certificates, plus your paramedic, plus a three-month internship in a full-time department with your MPO certifications. Um, she was the first one to build it. Anyways, Marcy came over and grabbed me washing the truck, and she goes, I want you to take my job. I want you to transition over here in the future. I think you'd be really good at it. And I laughed at her, and I said, absolutely not. I'm a firefighter. And we got talking about it, and she goes, you need to go back and get your master's degree. And I said, I would never go back and get my master's degree. I have my bachelor's degree and that's all I need. And I remember like yesterday, and I've told this to so many people, Marcy said, Jeff, life throws you a lot of curveballs, and most things can be taken away from you without your permission. 
She goes, you can lose your kids. You can lose your truck. You can lose your wife. You can lose your dog. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends, your social network. She goes, all these things can be taken from you without your permission. But the one thing that they can't take from you is your education. She goes, it's your education and your faith. She goes, if you can build on those two pillars, once you have that degree in your hand, you have that piece of paper, you will always have that degree. And it doesn't matter what happens to you. You'll always have the degree. They can't take it from you. Concentrate on the things that people can't take from you. That really resonated with me. And I've had lunch with Marcy many times here in the last uh, year as I transitioned out of the fire service. And I brought that up numerous times. I go, I remember the day you told me that. And I'm spreading that message to other people because although I thought you were full of it the day you told me, man, you know, 10 years later, I'm looking at this going, man, were you ever right? And I'm incredibly thankful I have that diploma hanging on my wall because it has opened many, many doors, many doors. What's your take on the state of mental health perspective in the fire service? Mental health is a hot topic right now. As I teach my classes, there was a statistic I pulled out of somewhere and I I should have cited it because I don't remember where I got it from, but it said that more first responders die from suicide every year than line duty deaths. I remember when I read it, I'm like, wow, I'm putting that in one of my PowerPoints. That's a moving statistic. And it was just yesterday, um, one of my students came in and I usually start the class with anyone having anything to share over the weekend. And she shared this horrific story of a quadruple fatality accident right outside her hometown, you know, up here in Wisconsin, there's some small towns. And, you know, she initially wanted to go to the call and, and be on the EMS crew. And then she realized a short time later, she would not want to be in that call because she knew every single person in those cars. We got on a discussion about suicide and coping and, and how do we balance that emotional trauma that comes with these calls and the frequency of these calls. I don't know if there's a good answer, but I know that answer starts with having resources to talk this stuff through. It starts with shedding this thought or stereotype of firefighters being too tough to talk and trying to hide their emotions and finding other vices to cope with that trauma. It starts with accepting the fact that our human mind is not made to handle these reoccurring high trauma calls and looking and reaching out for that help. So once you accept those things and do those things, you're on the path to longevity is probably the best word for it. And the other part that comes with this is it circles all the way back to that nutrition and physical health because your physical health correlates directly to your mental health. You need to balance those two out. We're a long ways away from being good at this. I heard a fire chief not that long ago, within the last year, there was a bad call here in Wisconsin. Some of the crews went in to talk to the fire chiefs and say, hey, I really think we should bring in a counselor or do a CISD breakdown. And his response to them was something along the lines of, I don't know why this bothers you guys so bad. It certainly doesn't bother me. Just do your job. And I'm like, oh, my God, you can't say that. These are people who probably didn't want to have this conversation, probably didn't want to go on the call, but I give them all the credit in the world for saying, hey, I'm seeing some signs out of my crew members that are alarming and we're asking for your assistance. And instead of giving assistance, it's thrown back on them to say, you know, basically suck it up. It's that mentality that's going to prolong this epidemic and it's not going to lead us down to the path of redemption. I really want to highlight one point you made there that's sticking with me about how our brains aren't wired to see this many traumatic calls in a lifetime. And I guess we think back even to 
our ancestors and how we've evolved, and then you apply it to the everyday person living their life, they may only be exposed to a couple things in their life and their brain through evolution is wired to tolerate that. But now in our culture, we have a service that brings a human mind to it over and over and over again. You know, an evolution takes a long time, so we haven't got there where we can handle it. It's just a really interesting point. And it's no secret that call volume is going up. So there's a certain element of repetition that's in there. And as call volume goes up, sleep goes down. So that's another element that you can throw into that. With technology around, you're seeing it. Back in the day, a bad accident would happen and it would take you days or weeks to hear about it or read about it in newspapers. It's a lot different than you're watching it on the video screen in your phone. Speeds are increased. You know, we have cars that are moving a lot faster. We have more cars that are moving. It's not one factor and it's not five factors. It's a hundred factors that are all playing into this perfect storm. We as a fire service, it doesn't matter what we talk about. It doesn't matter if we're talking about orientation and compasses, like we're going to probably talk about here a little bit, or if we're talking about health or if we're talking about mental health, we're slow to change. We're rooted in tradition and we're slow to change. There's other industries out there that are very flexible and very proactive, and we are clearly not one of them. And there's a lot of pros to that. There's a lot of uh, this machismo brotherhood tradition that is awesome and that we're very proud of. And there's the other side of the coin of that where it's hurting us and we're cutting our own throats. We can get into the debate of that everything has to change or we're focusing on changing the wrong things. When we just covered a couple things a little ways back there, cancer prevention, physical fitness, nutrition, and now you're adding the mental health aspect to it. These are things that we can get better at. And there's things that we can keep the same, like our attitude towards being smart and aggressive on the fireground. There are more important, bigger hit items some of the terminology I use when I talk about this is the change needs to be meaningful. So we're not just changing for the sake of changing. Let's make sure that we're changing for the right reasons. And the change needs to be consistent. And our change has to outpace whatever the problem is. So we can't allow the mental health and the physical fitness and all this other stuff to be getting worse as we're just stumbling along. We need to change at a consistent, meaningful pace. So we're making progress or we're making gains. As much as everyone in the fire service hates change, and you can add me to that list. I mean, there's sometimes you read a new policy and you're like, what the hell is this? You really have to weigh the pros and the cons and the risks versus rewards and just accept the fact that the job today is not the same job that you started on 25 years ago. And because it's not the same job, we need to do things differently. And let's pick the right reasons and make the right changes to put ourselves in the best situation possible to have longevity and, and a long career that's both safe and successful. On the topic of meaningful change in the fire ground and things that we can do to make things better, give me your perspective on how we should approach that and then how your venture into adding something to improve our abilities on the fire ground came to be with Northern Star. You know, I think back to all the fire classes I taught 20 years ago compared to the fire class that I'm currently teaching right now, and we're making headway. We're teaching flow path. We're teaching risk versus reward. We're listening to Gordon Graham. We're teaching fitness. We're teaching uh, fire dynamic at a much higher level than we ever have in the past. And what I tell a lot of my students is we're in this era of change, but the, the really cool part to me is the fact that we're in an era of change that is based on science. Because 20 years ago, you were simply told, you're going to do this this way because this is the way we do it. And that was about all the information you were given. And as a new guy, you went, okay, sir, and you did it. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's how you did it. 
I went down to FDIC with the tech college. The year the Governor's Island study was released, we went to a breakout session. I was with another one of my close friends and mentors, Kim Nessel, one of the smartest guys in the fire service, hands down, period. I'll put his knowledge up against anyone. And I'm sitting next to Kim and we're at FDIC and Bobby Holland walks out on stage. And I remember his opening comments for this breakout session, which was they had to move it into the main auditorium there because there's so many people. He said, I want you to take a look to your left and your right and, and identify who's sitting around you because you are now sitting at the Woodstock of the fire service. And he goes, and by that, I mean, in 10 years from now, everyone's going to say that they were here to hear this presentation. And that's not the fact. Only you guys in this room are here. So take a look around and identify who's here so you can proudly raise your hand and say you were the first to hear this. And then he walked out, Majikowski and these other guys, and they unveiled the Governor's Island study for the first time with all the thermal couplings and pushing fire and transitional fire tech and all the things that have caused the buzz in the fire service over the last, whatever, eight, 10 years here. And I was hooked from the word go. I mean, it's science. It's indisputable science evidence that this happened. And they had such a luxury of having roll houses out there to repeat these studies and show it was not subjective at all. The whole thing ended and I was on a high. I was probably halfway through my career at the time. And I'm like, this is amazing. I can't believe this. And I remember looking at Kim like, Kim, let's go grab a beer and talk about this. And his eyes were like the size of half dollars. And he goes, I got to go back to my room job. I go, oh, you're not feeling well? No, these guys just told me that everything that I've done and taught for the last 20 years is wrong. Indisputable evidence. They took the rug out from underneath me. I need to go process this stuff. And I was like, holy crap, they got to Kim. I mean, you get to Kim. <laughs> um, that, that's pretty cool stuff. Everything that we're doing right now, from wind-driven fires to flow paths, to on and on and on, it's all based on science. The guys at the UL laboratories, we're heading up to Philly next week to the symposium for fire safety technology with Billy Goldfeder and National Fallen Fire Foundation. They're going to do a tour of their UL test center there. This is amazing, amazing work that they're doing. And we as a fire service need to be paying attention to it and then being flexible enough to implement it into our policies and procedures and tactics and not take 10 years after a study comes out. We had a fire at a fire department that I used to work for where we deployed a transitional fire attack. And I understand it's been around forever and I understand name changes and it's all perspective or whatever. But we were doing a review a couple of days later where we all sit down, everyone at the call and what went good, what went bad. And one of the chiefs came in and says, what is all this crap about? He's a younger chief too. Just because you read some article doesn't mean that we're going to change the way we do it around here. And the room sort of fell silent because everyone knew that we did the right thing. Everyone knew that we trained on this. Everyone has been reading the articles, but here you have a old traditional viewpoint. And it was a tense conversation until one of the other chiefs finally spoke up. I think it was the incident commander on the call, actually, who was a battalion chief, said, uh, we've trained on this as a department. These guys did the right thing, and they reduced the risk by highlighting the reward, and it was a hell of a stop. Um, they did exactly right. So those mentalities were still out there years ago. I think they're slowly peeling away. I'm, I'm hoping there's very few of them left. We had another fire here, the, the neighboring fire department. Um, they called for mutual aid. We go shooting over there, and the incident commander walks up says, uh, there's a fairly large bar open, like dance club type of thing. He goes, don't worry. We opened up every single door and window to make sure that we got all the smoke out. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And the guy coming off my truck goes, oh, that's just freaking great. Predictably, the thing burns to the ground. And you got to give these guys a break so they can train and adjust their tactics as well. 
doesn't matter if you're working in a department of 12 people or 12,000 people, fire is indiscriminate. It's going to behave. It's predictable. It doesn't matter who's inside to put it out. It's going to do the same thing each time. So we're making progress for sure. There's quite a long ways to go. And the problem is as we continue to make the progress and we continue to make these changes, more studies are coming out and more studies are coming out and more studies. And we're just getting just overrun with this information, which don't get me wrong, is awesome. But it takes a real focus to evaluate, implement, and put that change in your department while you're also having budget problems, training issues, increased run volume, time restraints, all this stuff comes into play. It's certainly a challenge and it starts with good leadership. Back to the other point, it was in 2014, December 2014 to be exact, we just had a training burn recently with the local tech college. And these training burns, you put your sets in there, you put your pallets, and you mark everything with spray paint, and you walk the students through and say, this is set one, this is set two, this is where our secondary egress is, the ladder's over here. And and we take the students in, and we're up on the second floor, and we're doing our thing, and all of a sudden something, I don't know what happened. Maybe a part of the roof came down, probably a window got taken out, but our conditions went from decent to bad in a split second. And I said, okay, we need to back out and reevaluate. This is not a situation we should be in for training. We're right here. Let's practice going down this ladder and, and utilize that. And I open up the window, and there's no ladder. And it wasn't the fact that someone moved the ladder. I was at the wrong window. <laughs> in hindsight, I thought to myself, how in the hell... And I become disoriented in a house that I just walked through with five students and help put the sets in place and help spray paint Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta on doors. How, how does that happen? And it started with, how do we not have a singular light that is placed inside of our mask? So when we turn our head to the north, it illuminates. That should be very simple for us to do. So hence, Northern Star is the name of my product. Baby Jesus, Three Wise Men, that's how we got the name. I saw a commercial on TV that day in December at the fire station that said, do you have a good idea? Send us an email. We're running a local contest for people who have good ideas. By the way, if you see those commercials with like the caveman and the rock where they chip away at it, it's like invent help or something like that. Just so you know, that's a Chinese company that is taking out advertisements here in the U.S. trying to get people to send them their ideas so they're going to quote unquote help you as they're making it overseas. I've been told that. I haven't verified it, but keep that in mind. If you got an idea, that's probably not the way to go. But I entered this contest and a few days later, I'm on stage and I'm telling them this idea. I'm a firefighter and this is what should happen. They cut me a $5,000 happy Gilmore check. They immediately take it back and send it down to the patent agency. And then over two to three years, we uh, research, develop an eight directional smart compass that goes inside of our face mask and has gyroscopes and magnetometers and all this other cool stuff that at the time I had no idea what those words mean and now I'm very versed on them. But most of the times I travel around and I show this Northern Star to people, the first comment I get is, how in the hell did I not think of that? If you read these line of duty deaths, if you read the close call and the secret list and talk to the people who study this stuff, the word disorientation is littered through all these reports. If you pull up your latest ISTA or Jones and Bartlett firefighter book, there's an entire chapter called Firefighter Survival that deals with maintaining your orientation. And in that book, it actually says on several occasions, do your best. <laughs> you know, look at the outside of the house and try to paint the mental picture of where the kitchen will be and where the bathroom is and bedrooms. And then when you go inside, do your best to try to maintain your orientation. And I'm going... My six-year-old daughter has more technology in her little iPod that she puts in her pocket than I have in my mask. And how in the hell is that possible? So we developed this compass and rolled it out there and got a lot of acclaim, got flown out to the White House and met the president and 
got put on Fox Business News and sold compasses in 33 different countries, verified that they work on Navy submarines uh, through the thick steel. It's a pretty cool device, and it's often termed as a no-brainer that in order for us to be the best firefighter we can, we need to be orientated to our surroundings. Yes, it will help you get out. People say, well, we don't use North, South, East, West, Jeff. We use instant command system. And I say, as you should. <laughs> but instead of saying engine two is making entry on the Alpha side with two personnel, you say engine two is making entry in the Alpha North side. One word, just one word. Just add the word North in there or whatever side Alpha faces. And when you go interior, if you need to get yourself back out, go North. But more importantly, when someone tells you that the kid's in the trolley side bedroom or your egress ladders on the Delta side, or the kids in a Bravo Charlie corner bedroom, well, if the kids in a Bravo Charlie corner bedroom, go Southeast. That's which way the kid is. You don't have to guess. You can move faster. You can move more efficiently. You can move more confidently. And yes, you're going to hit a wall or a hallway or whatever, but just keep going Southeast. That's where the kid is. That's where your victim is. Go get them. Right now we stumble along. We move apprehensively and it's unacceptable. We have the technology available. Every single cell phone, truck, piece of crap car has a compass in it but nobody gave us the ability to do it in our mask and that sucks so i took it upon myself and i did it and here we are it's interesting you mentioned about what's in your kids technology and in the cars because literally just two days ago before we're having this conversation my kids became fascinated with the compass in the truck and wanted me to turn it on and (laughs) and then we started having the conversation about about what it means and which way we're facing and which way cities are so from that you know, very young age, they can grasp the concept. Well, I'll tell you, I tried to make this product firefighter proof and we all know that that's impossible. I just didn't quite understand how impossible that was. I overestimated the intelligence of the fire service. I really, really did. Um, when I go to these different trade shows like FDIC and I tell people, well, if Elf is North, you'd best be able to figure out that Charlie is South. And if you can't get the hell off my truck, you're going to hurt someone. And there's a large number of us, unfortunately, that can't figure that out. They just don't have the spatial awareness. All the different features I put in this thing, you know, there's no on-off switch. You activate it by tapping and shaking your mask. And the number of firefighters that I have to sit down repetitively with and show them this is mind-boggling to me. And it's probably because I'm too close. I see it. It comes second nature to me, whereas it's new to them. Um, I put right into directions. The very first line of my directions for this compass is, I know you're a firefighter and you hate reading directions. I put a couple dots and I said, but this device could potentially save your life. Please, please read these directions. Most of my customers throw them away. They pull it out, they read the first line, they throw them away. And I'm like, I don't know how to combat that. (laughs) I just don't. So we're working toward making it better. We're moving forward to make some improvements. We have quite a few of them out there. We're nowhere near the level of sales where we need to be. There's a variety of reasons for that. We're working to make it better. Next week, we fly out to Philly, and I'm I'm meeting with a very large company about partnering up and making some pretty cool advancements to it. So the conversation that's going to take place next week is developing a unit that calibrates to your user's individual surroundings. So it started with the Navy. When the Navy said, okay, we know these work on our submarines. That's pretty awesome that there's a magnetometer that'll work on a sub. But we don't care which way north is when a fire breaks out. We need to know which way the stern is and which way the bow is, important starboard. Can you somehow calibrate this device to those headings without putting beacons out? 
So I talked to my engineers and they said, oh yeah, we can absolutely do that for sure. It's going to cost some money. It's going to take some testing. But more importantly, from a firefighter standpoint, I'm looking at going, that really works well for us because our structures are Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta, which is very similar to what the Navy's asking us to do. And whereas their ships can actually move, ours don't. Our house would stay still. So we pitched it around and got one of the big companies to bite. And we're going to hopefully partner up here and develop a product that will calibrate to your individual's user surroundings. So when you point it at the Alpha Bravo corner, it'll tell you that's Alpha Bravo and that's Charlie and that's Delta. And that's stinking amazing. I don't care who you are. That is stinking amazing. And I'm super excited and I'm hopeful that we can follow through on that project. There's challenges ahead of us, but I think we can overcome them with the right amount of time and money. Maybe you can echo this with the way you build training when you talk about the things that firefighters can find fault with, which can be healthy because once you bring something to bear, then it's been critiqued pretty harshly. Um, I find with training, my approach often has been what can be carved out of this? What holes are going to be found? What issues are going to be brought up? And then I reverse engineer it back to the start of the training. And do you find that bringing a product to the fire service is similar in that way that what are they going to find problems with here before I even mention the idea? Yeah, for sure. I ran through a program here at UW-Madison called Idea Advance, where they throw you some money in a grant form. But in order to get that money, you need to do a lot of legwork. And the legwork is not on product development. The legwork is on research. So they challenged me to talk to many, many firefighters and really flesh out the idea, the features, what is right, what is wrong. And that's really one of my things I'm going to Philly next week to talk to a lot of leaders for is, how does this new product have to work in order to be accepted into the fire service? Every product that we have out there, the best thermal imaging camera, the best SCBA, they all have their limitations. And the only way to figure out what those limitations are is to find their breaking point. And that's where that training comes in, at least in my point of view, is you're going to push that product to its flaws to expose those flaws so you know what its limitations are. And it's not that it's a bad product. It's just now I know where I can trust it. Now I know where I can use it. And I also know where I shouldn't trust it and use it. And that's equally as important. So we did a lot of testing. We had a lot of battery issues. We had some magnetometer issues with accuracy. And we were able to overcome all of those. And even now, as I'm pushing this product out there, there's a lot more options. I keep learning more. I'm like, God, I wish we would have done it this way. And I God, I wish I would have incorporated this feature in. And I'm finding secondary markets, scuba divers and four-wheelers and snowmobilers. <laughs> Hell, we sold some of the people who play paintball, for God's sakes. There's a lot of different things. You continuously learn and you continuously involve. And when you're someone like myself and a lot of your listeners, no doubt, you have ideas, but it takes a crap load of money to bring these forward. I bet you I'm into this for well, well over a quarter million. Uh, I bet you I'm approaching a half a million dollars. And I'm thankful that a lot of that was in grant prize money. There's a ton of opportunities out there to go out there and enter contests and pitch your idea and acquire grants. And then I'm equally thankful for, I found a, a local bank in Northwestern bank that really believes in the entrepreneurial spirit and first responders and basically just rolled out a line of credit and said, take what you need. <laughs> we want our money back, but take what you need and develop us something good been it's been a challenge it, it absolutely has most of the best ideas 
doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a welder or a firefighter or whatever. When you're in that space, you identify what your pain points are. You identify where your shortcomings within your field are. And usually it's those experts in the field that can come up with a solution to it. It's not some engineer sitting out in some Fortune 500 company that can develop something for a firefighter. They should, and oftentimes do, bring in firefighters to serve as advisors and vetting it out. But there's nothing better than putting your product into the field. Give them your product with no instructions and say, figure it out. Because that's what we're going to probably do anyways. So uh, you can learn a lot from running that course. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing is that if you're going to see an idea or a product eventually become successful, that you need to have endurance and you need to have some cognitive and even ego flexibility to allow the product to change on its own and allow people to change the product. For sure. My recommendation to people is if you have an idea, A, make sure that you're not the only one that thinks it's a good idea. Invite and challenge people to shoot holes through it. That was part of my issues. I challenged a lot of people to shoot holes through it, but a lot of them were really nice. You know, we don't want to tear Jeff down. He's doing such a good job with this, or he's such a nice guy, whatever. But when it came down to actually pulling money out of your pocket and putting it down on the table, then they're like, well, wait a second now. You know, I need a new fishing rod. But they were very happy with prototypes and the testing and things like that. So make sure that you're getting an honest opinion. Make sure you're talking to the right people that are going to give you that constructive feedback and be willing to be flexible, like you had said, to change those things. And then at the end of the day, you got to stick your neck out. If you're happy with your job, if you're happy with your lifestyle, this may not be the best thing to do because there have been many sleepless nights where I'm like, what did I just do? Am I going to keep the house? How am I going to pay this money back? Why did this unit not work? It's an ebb and flow of emotions. I've often said that the emotional roller coaster I've taken in the fire service has been a piece of cake compared to the emotional roller coaster I've taken being an entrepreneur. It's just up and down. And really what it comes down to is that if you're taking care of a patient on scene or rescuing some of a house fire and things go wrong, you can sort of leave that behind you to some degree because you don't have a personal tie to it. While it can affect you mentally long-term, it's, that person's not going to be someone that's sitting with you at the kitchen table every day. But when you stick your neck out and you potentially are going to lose the house or the car or your lifestyle, now you're affecting your wife and kids. And you love them more than anything, and you don't want to jeopardize their happiness on your stupid-ass idea that you thought that you could make the new best door wedge and your door wedge didn't go so good. It's a lot more personal when it comes to this. And some people get that and some people don't. I've gotten defensive with some people who have some negative things to say and they don't understand quite how personal it is to me and they take it the wrong way. And some of those conversations I wish I could take back, but a lot of them I don't (laughs) because it is personal. It's my idea. I've invested my life savings into this and there is no option for failure. Failure is not an option I like to look at. The advice to guys out there is get the right information, weigh that risk versus reward, remove all ropes and knives out of the house and go after it and constantly balance that risk versus reward algorithm that we similarly do on the fire station, but, but apply it to this business as well. How's it been inserting this product into what would be a sea of fire service products? You go to trade shows and you walk in, is that overwhelming to see how many things are out there and how do you stand out when you know yours has value over maybe some of the other ones that are kitschy or gimmicky? Yeah, I tell you, it's all over the board. The positives are I walk into FDIC now and I can make my rounds and 
the friends that I've made, the support that I've gotten from people who come up and give you a hug um, and say, this is great. You know, keep up the good work. All these other guys, you know, Andy Starn is doing insight fire training with the thermal imaging cameras who just got accredited the other day, which is freaking amazing for him. Uh, you know, the bad axe people, the guys who make the pig axes, I can just go on and on and on. Uh, Kevin with HydroVent, these guys have all done and developed amazing products and they did it from a grassroots perspective. I love those guys. I give them all my support in the world. Where I get all riled up is some of these really big corporations who really put on a good face for firefighter safety. But when you really look behind the scenes and you pull back the curtain, you realize they're in for the money. And the fire safety thing is just a nice front. And I'm sure there's a certain element in it within their business plan for it, but it's about the money. And there's actions that they take that you just sort of throw your hands up and be like, that's not right. It's just flat out not right. And you don't have a single firefighter on your staff and not a single one of your salespeople are firefighters. And if they are, they're sellouts because they're selling stuff that's either crappy or not right or limiting people's ability to be safe. Where I have taken a lot of confidence out of is that there's no competition for my product. It's not, do you want to buy Jeff's directional guidance compass or do you want to buy their directional guidance compass? There is no other option. You can either be blind and guess where you're going inside of a fire or have piece of technology to tell you which way you're going, period. This is your option, guys. Do you want to know where you're going or do you want to guess? And I've told people we're really good at training. We're really good at guessing. We're really good at maintaining our orientation, but you have to guess correctly 100% of the time. You're not allowed to guess incorrectly. And if you do, you're going to become a statistic. Charleston, Worcester, the gentleman down in San Antonio, these would never have happened if those people could have maintained their orientation, period. We're just waiting for the next one. And they happen on a fairly regular basis. Some of them make the news, some of them don't. Most of them don't make the news and they don't result in deaths. They're simply a mayday call. Maybe it's just a guy that barely made it out. Maybe it's a guy that just got first degree burns because he got turned around. But these things are happening all the stinking time. And they all would be alleviated by being able to maintain your orientation. And I throw my hands up. I'm selling these things for as low as a hundred stinking dollars. I mean, that's about as low as I possibly can go and still have a meaningful ability to get myself out of the hole that I put myself in with all this investment. I got the international patent, 33 different countries. The proposal in Korea is making this mandatory equipment. You're not allowed to be a firefighter and go into a fire without having a directional guidance unit in your mask, period. But here in the U.S., we go back to that tradition we go back to that slow change and all that stuff comes into play. And here we are. We're pushing forward. We're gaining inch by inch, but it's been a long, slow road. I first unveiled this compass at FDIC in, I think it was 2017. We went down, there was some piece of crap prototypes that barely worked, but it was enough of a feedback that people are going, this is pretty cool. This is new and innovative. So it took me until 2018 to really come back with something that I'm like, okay, buy it right now. It's small. It's powerful. It's reliable. That was the first time I felt confident selling this to people. And uh, 2019 was even better for us. We're off and running. It's just a matter of getting the proper endorsements and more importantly, getting some of these large corporations, specifically the mask manufacturers on board from Chicago to FDNY, the Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston, uh, Cal Fire. They all have units. They've all tested them. They've all shown interest and put them in their mask. And they've all stopped short when the mask manufacturer comes forward and says, well, we didn't say you can put that in our mask. 
And I'm going, okay, uh, tell me how you want to do it. I don't care how we do it. I don't care if they take it off my hands, if they license it, if they write waivers. It doesn't matter how they go into mask. They need to go into the mask, period. And right now, there's a lot of really progressive fire chiefs that go, I don't care what they tell me. This is clearly going to make my guys safer, and I'm going to do that regardless of some off-the-wall possible warranty violation that would take place 10 years down the road, which never happens anyways, but I can recognize the liability and the risk to it. But we went as far as recreating the NFPA 1981 rating heat test with Intertech Labs. We recreated the test to prove to people that this doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the lens, that the heat will dissipate across the lens, and it won't uh, attach to the focal point. We went through a lot of money and a lot of time to prove to people that this is the right device we're just not eligible for certification. I cannot certify this in a mask. Only the mask manufacturers can certify it. And that's why I'm really excited about next week. This new company that we're going to team up with will potentially take this out of the mask altogether and give you alternative ways of getting the same information. But when you really boil down to it, inside your mask where there's no smoke, easily visible, that's the best place for it. And if we're not going to put it there, let's put it somewhere else. Let's put it on a glove. Let's put it on a flashlight. Let's put it on a radio strap. Let's put it anywhere. At the end of the day, let's give our guys the necessary information to be safe and move more efficiently inside. And that's where we're heading. It's been a long road, but it's the support of the guys. I, I tell you what, I knew a lot of people here in Wisconsin from my union days and my state committee days and things like that. But when I had to go to the White House and have a meeting with the president about this, I had some time to kill before my flight left and I had nothing to do. So I put on my backpack and I Googled nearest fire station <laughs> and I walked down the street and knocked on the door and said, Hey, I'm looking for a place to hang out for a couple hours. What are you guys up to? And next thing I know, I'm meeting abroad and I'm watching game of Thrones with DC firefighters. And you can't duplicate that brotherhood. It took them a half abroad to ask me why the hell I was there. <laughs> they, they didn't care. It's just, Oh, you're a brother. Yeah. Come on in. We got an extra broad in the back. Okay. So, we're sitting there eating a broad, and they go, why are you here? And I pulled out my compass. I said, oh, I was over at the White House showing this. And they go, what the hell is that? That's amazing. Hey, you got to call this chief down there. And that's most of the time where it stops. You call the chief. This is what we got. Uh, I don't know, budget, liability, um, all these other conversations come into play. But when you show it to a guy who's actually going to put it in his mask and go into fire, it's instantaneous. Hell yeah, that's going to make me better. That's going to make me safer. Give it to me now. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of my sales are coming from. Individual guys buying them for themselves, not chiefs with limited budgets, finding the money to give them to everyone. But at the end of the day, I don't care how you get it. Just get it. Not everyone's going to want to financially invest or they're not going to have the endurance or perseverance to do what you're doing. But if we dial it back to even on a smaller level that there are policy changes, there are smaller tactical changes, there are things out there that firefighters are recognizing as me possibly holes in our game as a whole service or within their own department, they may be dissuaded from speaking up and bringing it forward because they think it's going to get shot down. It's not going to go anywhere. Why do it? Can those guys at least take some solace in the fact that you know now, I told you, I brought it forward, it's on your table, and you pushed it off. And now I can sleep at night knowing at least I put it out there. And if my department, the whole service decides not to take it on, now that's no longer on me because I did my best to make this better. Yes and no. Yes and everything you just said. Knowing the fact that if I don't make this a successful business, 
I'm going to negatively impact my wife and kids lifestyle on your level for sure. Yeah. I mean, once I get back to that Mason Dixon line, once I get back to the point of we're sustainable as far as a budget and a family goes, I think I could transition over to that other adoption side of it. One of the hardest problems that I have is when I see another report come out of a guy gets disoriented, burnt, dead, whatever, I want to just scream to the world. I want to flood social media with what the hell are you guys thinking? Here it is right here. Here's another one. But as soon as you do that, at least I personally feel like then I'm capitalizing on another brother's misery. You don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. So you sort of beat around the bush and maybe you pump up with a couple more social medias, but you don't mention the particular call. It's a fine line between saying, here's another one. And I told you so. So it's difficult. And that's why I appreciate, you know, having opportunities like this to come on and spread this message because I'm not trying to make a buck on the back of a brother's misery. I'm putting the information out there and encouraging people to pursue it. A lot of times it comes down to finding that decision maker in your department. It's rarely the fire chief. You know, the fire chief is more of a political position now than ever before. It's usually some progressive captain. It's someone on a strategies and tactics committee. It's someone who's holding the purse strings, but it's usually someone that is still actively going into fires or actively scuba diving or actively performing rescues that is the catalyst within a department because they realize that this is going to affect them and it's going to make them better because once you go above their head, those people have already done that. They've already rose to those ranks and they're never going to put a compass in their mask because they don't own a mask. Or if they do, it's in some bag somewhere that they couldn't identify in a short period of time. Anyways, we really get the traction from the guys that are actually going to use it and can see the benefit without even trying it. And then once they try it, then they really see the benefit. And ideas and products very often get snubbed when the people doing the snubbing don't even have a better option. Like you said, there is no other option right now. Well, forget this is the idea then. At least we've now had the aha moment of that's a hole in the game. So if you don't think this is any good, what do you think will work then? You bring an option ahead, but very often you'll get nothing back. I just wanted to say this is crap, even though I have no other solution for this issue. Yeah, one of my favorite things to say at the trade shows is, you know, they often walk by. You're perusing, I guess, maybe <laughs> the booths, uh, but you're not meticulously staying focused on what you're walking by. And if I see some younger guys that are clearly in the age group of interior firefighters, I'll yell out, hey, do you go inside fires? And they'll usually say, you know, yeah, you know, I'm cool. Then why the hell are you not stopping here? And then they go, well, what do you got? And I'll give them a 10-second elevator pitch. And most of them will say, holy shit, yeah. Hey, get on over here, Bob. Come check this out. Or I'm going to go grab my chief and bring him back. Every now and then I get some who sort of roll their eyes and like, oh, another gimmick. And <laughs> I'm pretty brash about it. I go, okay, good luck. I hope you keep guessing right. And they move on. But it's few and far between. The people who don't actively pursue purchase are usually revolving around budgetary issues or policies and procedures, meaning the mask manufacturer. What does this manufacturer say about this going in the mask? And I'm like, uh, uh, it's not good. My best partner right now is MSA. MSA simply says, we are not going to endorse it going in our mask, but we're certainly not going to ban it going from our mask. Um, this is an individual user's decision whether or not they want to put this in our mask. We're glad that you did the NFPA testing to prove that it doesn't jeopardize your mask. But as soon as they take that next step and actually put a letter out that says this can go in our masks. Now they're on the hook for liability. They don't want to be on that liability hook. 
especially since they don't have any skin in the game. If they're performing a risk versus reward analysis from their perspective, there's no reward. To which I respond, let's find a reward. <laughs> let's find an agreement, a licensure, a royalty, anything. Imagine being that mass manufacturer that can change your marketing strategy to we are the only mask in the world that can provide directional guidance in the mask. How does that not jump off the page? How does that not boost your sales? But right now, they're just not willing to do it for a variety of reasons. And I've heard a lot of different excuses, that's for sure. So when we go meet with this new company, that won't be the issue anymore. It won't be a mask manufacturer issue. Um, we're going to give you alternative measures to put it out there. One in particular that's going to blow your guys' mind if they follow through on it. And it's a very large company. It can probably buy 3M with their petty change. It's a big boy, and, and I'm excited, and I hope it comes to fruition because it could be a game changer, not only for myself, but more importantly, it could be a game changer for the fire service, and we don't have to deal with a lot of the politics and red tape because these guys write the politics in a red tape. Yeah, so again, the flexibility and not taking no for an answer and finding where it fits, not only in the fire service, but in the bureaucratic capitalist world. You know where you want to get. You know what the end goal is. The path to get there is very rarely the path that you envision at the beginning of the journey. Someone showed me a line graph of the path of an average entrepreneur. And I said, what the entrepreneur thinks, and you see this nice gradual line going from zero to you know a million, and then they go, the actual path that you do take, and it's a bunch of squiggly lines that go up and down and around and through, and this is like cursive writing. They go, that's usually the path you take. And everyone talks about this chasm. This chasm is, you know, you get the early adopters, you get all this early endorsement and you rah, rah, and this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden everything goes dark and everything stops. And I clearly witnessed that. And people kept telling me, you're in the chasm, Jeff, read this book, watch this Ted talk, do this and do that. Once you come out of the chasm, you see an immediate and meaningful spike upwards. And they go, you're so freaking close. Don't give up. Don't throw the towel in. Keep trudging ahead. Even if you're spinning your wheels and you're going backwards, keep spinning your wheels. The best thing that I did was six or nine months ago, I just slowed everything down. I slowed my social media down. I slowed my phone calls down and it slowed my sales down. But what it did was it, it brought my burn rate down to almost nothing. And surprisingly enough, I'm still doing podcasts and I'm still getting sales and I'm still uh, shipping units around the world, albeit at a much slower pace. But when you're not spinning your wheels a thousand miles an hour and burning through cash left and right, beating your head against a brick wall, it becomes a lot easier when you have this slow march forward with a slow burn rate. If you do the ratio, we're in a much better situation in our current place than we were when we were spinning our wheels a thousand miles an hour and only making small progress. It's really the difference between, I guess, project management and crisis management. So we're crisis managers getting off the truck. We want instant action, instant results and you know, you're dealing in a project management world where you need to endure for a long period of time. So you nailed it. Um, I'm a firefighter. You're a firefighter. Most of the people that are listening to this are firefighters. We're not businessmen. Some of us think that we're businessmen. Some of us might even be businessmen. I'm not. My advisors and the people that I talk to have so much more knowledge on the business side. They don't know jack squat about a Higby notch but they know very much about burn rates and market analysis and project management. That's what I'm currently looking for. I'm looking for that guy who has a business head on his shoulders that can handle the business side of the house. And if they have some fireside as well, that's like the perfect candidate, but there's not a lot of them out there. 
if I can find that project manager type of guy that has some entrepreneurial spirit and a high drive that can be strategic, I'll hire that guy tomorrow. Because right now I am the janitor, I'm the president, I'm the secretary, I'm the sales and marketing guy. I'm the guy that's getting on the plane next week to go to Philly. And I'm also the guy that runs down to the tech school after I get off the phone with you and start setting up for a house burn that we're going to have next week. If there's one thing that I desperately need right now is A, I need this meeting to go well in Philadelphia. And B, I need someone to come in and help me run this company that has that experience and that knowledge so they can make those phone calls. They can strategically plan where we need to go right now because a lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is I'm guessing. I think we should go this way and I hit a brick wall and I think we should go this way and I hit another brick wall. And a lot of that sense is probably already there in someone else's mind. They could be more efficient in that upward climb. So ironically, these other people that you're seeking out as experts to guide you are are sort of your northern stars in the business world. Yeah. (laughs) Play on words, but yeah, I have some really, really good advisors here in Eau Claire who have never asked for a penny other than, you know, take them fishing or something like that. We enjoy each other's company. They're very successful people that have made presumably millions of dollars in their successes. And we just hit it off and they're like, if you need advice, you give us a call and we'll help you out. But we certainly can't do this full time. We're not going to make sales calls. We're not going to you know, work your books for you. We're not going to help you apply for that grant. But we will tell you, yeah, you know, maybe you should back off here. That sounds like a pretty good opportunity there, um, that type of stuff. But to have someone who has their head down in the books, working the customer management systems and things like that, that's what I need. And I'm hoping to find them soon because I think there's an opportunity for both of us. You mentioned a while back about being able to enter into other markets. You can get into other countries and fire services there. You can get into other markets completely, like you mentioned with Scuba and the Navy. That must be really great for you to be able to keep the finances coming in to persevere and last long enough for markets that are slower on the uptake. Yeah, those secondary markets are not my focus. Most of my customers have found me 100% of my foreign customers have found me. I've never taken an ad out in Japan or South Korea or Dubai or all these different places that have bought them. They have somehow, somebody found me and I give a lot of credit to my network of brothers around the country who also are making products and have sort of helped me get the word out. And most of the credit goes to social media. It's free advertising. You put it out there, you throw some good videos together and, and you make your case. It's important for myself and people like me to stay focused. I've had many people tell me, I had some investors. I've been looking for investors forever. I've met with so many investing groups, it's crazy. And one investing group will come in and say, well, your market's too small. You only want to sell to firefighters. I'm like, yeah, but there's like 9 million masks in the world. There's over a million masks in the United States alone. And those aren't even counting private industry and everything else. These are just fire masks, not including scuba masks. And the next group will come in and say, man, you're looking at scuba, you're looking at fire. I have some sales over in Egypt for uh, gas and oil miners that go on the bottom of the ocean floor where it's zero visibility and mine oil. They haven't been there, masks to use down there. Navy, military, and then that investor will come in and say, you're not focused enough. You're all over the board. You got to stay focused on your target market. So it's important to have an idea of where you want to go, stay focused. If someone comes along from a secondary market, by all means, go ahead and give them the time of day, have the conversation and make the sale if at all possible. But you can't be everything to everyone at the same time. And that's really where that project manager comes into play to have those strategic goals and to maintain that focus because I'm learning as I go. 
my brother-in-law, who's an advisor out in San Francisco, um, has helped me a ton. He says, Jeff, you've been given a Harvard business education on the back of failure. <laughs> the amount of information that you have learned and have acquired is going to set you up nicely in the future, and you haven't paid a dime for it, short of all your mental anguish of going through what we've gone through. I've read an article recently about how that's going to become more and more the norm, given the access to information and through our technology is that there'll be less and less people seeking degrees and more and more people just seeking information and skills. I know at my college where I teach now, they don't call us instructors anymore. They call us facilitators. <laughs> so the amount of YouTube links and links to different people's websites that I have embedded into my curriculum is amazing because I often tell people I'll be out of a job as an educator before too long, because if you really wanted to, you could, YouTube and webcast your way through the firefighter entry level curriculum and go challenge the state test. I have no doubt that you could learn everything you need to learn off the internet. Give me the objectives. Tell me what the job performance requirements are. I'll Google it. I'll watch a bunch of videos, read some articles. Then I'll go take the test and I'll probably do okay. That information is everywhere out there. It really is. Yeah, I've read this a number of places and I passed it on to a recent recruit class. I was lucky enough to talk with briefly that ignorance in this service is their own choice. There's way too much available now and they can't plead ignorance on anything. They can do their own research before they yay or nay it. Well, you sent me this huge list of questions of things that you'd like to talk about. And, and you know, it sort of goes to that one question, should everyone be testing? Should everyone be looking for a promotion? We have guys out there in our service who are just content. They're just flat out content. And, and one of the challenges I had as a union president was should someone who's maybe an engineer, an MPO, be forced to act as a lieutenant when that lieutenant is out on leave? Should he be forced to take that position up? And I was a strong proponent of the answer, no. If you want to be a, an engineer and drive the truck, don't get me wrong, you have to be good at it. You have to know your streets. You have to know your pump. You have to be willing to educate the rest of the guys in the department with your knowledge. But if that's your goal, you should not be forced to go sit in a seat and do something that is uncomfortable and something that you're not passionate about because, quite frankly, you could potentially do a really bad job and get people hurt. I think people should be given the opportunity to find their niche and perfect their trade within the department and become a very valuable resource as that rank. And be proud of it. Hell yeah, be proud of it. We had some outstanding, you know, Dave Lombardo and John Beagle and Bill Clee are three names that come to my head with uh, Eau Claire Fire. 53 years old, they were an engineer for 20 plus years, and you could put a blindfold over them and they could touch every single part of that truck and get water out of it without ever opening their eyes. They were exceptional at their job. I did not think that they should be forced to go sit in the seat. So now you have a subpar lieutenant who doesn't want to do it and a rookie firefighter who's being bumped up to drive the truck who's probably not very good at it. You don't have a very good crew at that point in time. So let's have one really strong guy who can drive that truck blindfolded and let's go find the people that want to be the officers who are out there reading the articles, doing the blogs and everything else. Because some of those guys I mentioned probably have no aspirations to learn about full path and new technology and fire dynamics because they're ingrained in what new subdivisions going in and how is that going to affect the flow pattern of traffic and what new pumps and piercing nozzles and all this other stuff. You know, they're all on that side of the house. They're not on the tactical side of the mental side frame. So 
give them that opportunity to do their job and then identify the people that want to do the other side of the house and are pursuing that stuff and are reading the blogs and watching the videos and listening to the webcasts and podcasts. Get those guys up to speed. And I think we're going to have a better fire service at the end of the day. I'm really conscious of your time. I know you're a busy guy, but I'm going to hit you with a few rapid fire questions here, which I haven't done. So you're the, the first one to <laughs> get these and you can expand on them as much as you want. They don't have to be short answers, but I think it'd be a good way for us to close out. Shared dorms or separate rooms? Separate rooms. As much as I like the camaraderie of the shared dorms with diversity and the requirement and need for more females and diversity in the fire service, um, the way to protect all of ourselves and make everyone feel comfortable in the fire service is separate rooms. And it has its pros and its cons for sure, but there's ways to make up those cons in other areas. Eat together or every firefighter for themselves? Man, I would love to eat together. I don't know of too many stations that have the opportunity to go to the, I mean, with Kenosha, we go to the bread store and get bread. We get to go to the butcher and get the meat. We go to the grocery store and get some vegetables and potatoes, and we'd have a cookie there, and we'd rotate through that stuff. We're just too busy. We're too busy training. We're too busy going on calls. There's too many other things that are happening these days to eat together, although if at all possible, the camaraderie that you can develop from eating together is hard to duplicate in any other manner. Crew workouts or solo? Absolutely. I would work out as a crew. Again, the eating together, the crew workouts, that's what makes up for those separate rooms. Uh, Nothing will irritate an officer more on a Saturday afternoon when you have five people in five separate bedrooms while see five different TV shows. That's breaking up that camaraderie. So the separate rooms has its purpose, but there's also the possibility of just saying, hey, guys, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, we're out here. The channel wars, the remote control wars that we went through back in the day, senior guy gets to watch it and quit flipping through so many stations. What the hell? I hate this show. As much as that's a pain in the butt, there's something to be said for the camaraderie that's built out of that stuff. So working out together is the same thing, pushing one another, knowing where your weaknesses are, being able to evaluate yourself against someone else. If I go in there as a fat tub of lard and the other two guys are over there knocking out chin-ups and everything else, I feel inferior and I should feel inferior. That should motivate me more compared to putting me in a weight room by myself. I'll lift a 60 pound dumbbell, 10 pounds above my head and pat myself in the back and then go back and eat a tombstone pizza. We push each other by being in the same room and we build that camaraderie by working out together. Smoothbore or fog nozzle? I like the smoothbore. It's just sort of who I am. I understand that the fog nozzle has its place. I really like some of the task force tips that give you the option of both because there's clearly a time and place for both of them. But if you're giving my choice between one or the other, I'm going to take a smoothbore every day. Two and a half inch line, interior, exterior, or both? I'm going to keep it exterior because it's thinking heavy. Hard to manipulate. I like to be nimble. I like to be flexible. I like to be able to be efficient when I'm inside of a fire because with fire dynamics, you need to move quick. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Make a decision and then be flexible to pivot off that decision. And most of the time, a two and a half inch line is going to slow you down. So be flexible, be proficient, practice with an inch and three quarter and save the two and a half for outside unless there's a unique circumstance where you got to take the two and a half inside, but it's rare. Trucker engine or both? Yes, both. <laughs> My first job on Kenosha Fire was a truckie. I thought I was king shit. You know, I wasn't one of the nurses on the ambulance, as they called them back in the day. You got the brake stuff. You sort of had the machismo about it. Transitioned over to the engine later on and got to go interior. They both served their purpose. 
They both have to work in conjunction with one another. And up here, quite frankly, they're both the same. Most of our quote-unquote truck companies are quints, in fact. Be diversified. An engine guy should be able to go up and cut a hole in the roof. An engine guy should be good with uh, through the lock, forceful entry. And conversely, a truck guy should be able to know how to knock the fire down. Acronyms, yay or nay? Always EA. As an educator and someone has their background in master's degree in education, those acronyms really come into play to help us remember what we need to remember when we need to remember it. I think back to a Reader's Digest, I think it was 2010, as a picture of a firefighter in front and references heroes and interviews nurses and firefighters and pilots and things like that. And it talks about, you know, why we do what we do under stressful situations. And the article basically said that when the shit hits the fan, we lose our ability to critically think. And we fall back on our training and the things that are built into our subconscious. And I heard it again last night when I was doing uh, this fire class, you know, someone pulled a triple layer load off the truck and they packed it all back up and it was hot and sweaty and their bugs out. And and I said, do it again. And they said, why? I just did it. I just showed you I can do it. I go, it doesn't work that way. Two o'clock in the morning when you're so fuzzy and you haven't done it in six months, this has to be ingrained into your subconscious. And we fall back on those subconscious traits. So, I mean, you always hear the thing on social media, uh, don't do it till you get it right, do it till you can't get it wrong. And there's a lot of merit in that. The acronyms help us get there. Lunar or slicers or whatever the case might be, you have to have those acronyms in the back of your head. So when you're on the ambulance, you kneel down in front of a critical patient. And I can't think of a single stinking question to ask them. I know there's probably 20. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, I can't think of them. And I go back to some of those acronyms that you sort of work your way through it. And the same things on the fire side. When you hear that mayday call as an instant commander, um, what do I need to know? You do it so few times, the acronyms help build it into our subconscious. So it's readily available when, when we need it most. Where can people find you? I'm going to add your links to the, uh, the show notes. But where can they look for you and find your product? The Northern Star is sold on our website primarily, Northern Star Fire, all one word, northernstarfire.com. There's videos on there. We have a handful of distributors set up around the country. We're always looking for more. I have a handful of what are titled ambassadors. So they're, they're firefighters in your local region that are just well-networked. Guys are saying, hey, I believe in your product. I've used it. I do a lot of training in my region, and I think I could sell the crap out of this. And I'm like, have at it, man. Make yourself some money because I don't have the ability to jump on a plane and fly to Florida every other week and try to hit up all these different apartments. Give me a call, jump on the website, watch the videos, evaluate the product, make sure it's right for you. I assure you it's going to work. And then on the flip side of that, stay tuned because I'm going to hopefully find that person to be my project manager soon. We're going to hopefully start ramping back up our social media because like I said earlier in the podcast, you know, we're sort of slowing things down to reduce our burn rate when we at the right time and hopefully that right time comes soon. We're going to take it back up and we're going to go much higher than we ever were in the past. And we're going to get to where we need to be. As much as social media and technology can get a bad rap sometimes, I think there's so many positives to it. And the fire service is making great use of it, let alone the fact that you and I have never had the opportunity to look each other in the eye and shake hands and have a beer. You know, we're able to have this conversation and hopefully we can make some of those things happen in the future. Yeah. Nothing makes me more happier when I go to a trade show and someone comes along and they introduce themselves to you like a brother and a friend. And usually the conversation goes, I saw you on social media. I heard you on the podcast. It's really great to meet you. And I just, I get a kick out of it every single time. There's no other job in the world that has the brotherhood and the camaraderie that we do short of the military veterans. It's special. We need to embrace it. We need to exemplify the positives on it. And we need to recruit more people into it. I said earlier, the lack of candidates that we have coming in 
today is mind-boggling to me. And I firmly believe it's a messaging problem. It's simply telling people the positives of our job because they're not coming looking for us anymore. So now we have to go look for them. And if we don't, we're going to continue to have this shortage. Well, I think we can close out there. This is a real pleasure, honestly. Every time I do this, it's a privilege. And this has been the same. I appreciate it more than I can possibly put into words. I enjoy the networking. I enjoy the conversation. I learn something from it every single time about other people and myself. And I look forward to a response. Awesome. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks.